This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. Genre Talk with Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas and special guest, Eric Falkenstein. It's interesting, there are actors who have said, I care 99% about the material. Others who say, I, you know, I've gotta have the director of my dreams. And others who think to themselves, it's really about the topic, regardless of the material itself. Now, here are Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. Hello, Philip, hello listeners, how are you guys this week? Yeah, I'm doing great, man. It's, uh, it's finally warming up here in LA. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's been pretty, we've had a pretty cold front, uh, the past couple of weeks, but it, it, it's finally getting a little, a little toasty. So I can finally cool. kind of unbundle. <laughs> I wonder what it'll be like in April when we actually air this, this episode, it'll be kind of interesting to see, you know, the weather's been so funky with COVID and the whole world kind of blowing up. Everything's been kind of a little weird anyway. So, um, it'll, I wonder if things will actually start feeling more normal again when we get back towards spring. Uh, yeah, we'll I hope so. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, yeah. I'm hoping things are just, you know, like the weather just will improve as we move towards summer. Yeah, well, I mean, if the, if the weather improves, it's going to make everybody feel better, at least in theory. So hopefully that will happen. But uh, anyway, we hope you guys have enjoyed the episodes we've had this season. We've had a, a kind of a, a variety of guests. We started out with an actor named Ian White who's been on Game of Thrones and uh, Aliens vs. Predator. Then we had Stacia Deutsch. Stacia Deutsch is a, a children's author, very successful, and, uh, and she was a lot of fun. And then we had an artist named Dan Norton who currently works at Riot Games, but he's worked for, you know, DC and Marvel, and he's worked for animation TV shows, and he does a lot of really cool stuff. So hopefully you heard all those episodes. Um, you can check them out at anchor.fm slash podcast if you haven't. There's also show notes there with links to their social media and some of their work and different things. So you guys definitely want to check that out. Today's guest is the first Broadway person we had. Last, last time, Dan Norton was the first uh, game, gaming person we'd ever had on, besides Philip. And he was the only, I think, one of the, one of the first artists we had on. But now we're going to have our first Broadway producer. This is the first person connected with Broadway. Eric Falkenstein is an old friend of mine that I met when we were camp counselors in the Adirondacks the summer of my freshman year of college. We're about the same age, and he and I just kind of hit it off, and we were assigned to neighboring cabins. So we hung out a lot, and we became friends. And years later, we hung out and wrote songs together and did other things, and he ended up going from being a lawyer, which was his original life plan, into being a big Broadway producer, and now he's just like a major force. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear about. He gave a lot of really good insight. Yeah, I mean, this is a, yeah, Brian, this is definitely one of those interviews that, that you know, I've just been looking forward to because, you know, I, I don't know a lot about theater, I'll be honest. You know, out here in L.A., it's, it, we don't have the theater scene the way, it, you know, New York does. And just kind of growing up, it, it wasn't a thing that I was, you know, uh, really introduced to. So I came to it pretty late, and it, I am incredibly interested in, like, what that world is like. So this is, this, is, uh, this is actually one I've been really looking forward to. Well, it was also really insightful to hear about an industry that's really been impacted heavily by COVID. I mean, there's a lot of industries that have managed to go on and find ways to, new ways to operate and to keep going, but Broadway has just shut down in a lot of ways. Um, 
more heavily. And, uh, you know, he really got into the, the impact on all the support businesses that brought that benefit from Broadway. All the, you know, the costume shops and the scene shop builders and, 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 and all that stuff that you don't think about, plus all the tourism businesses, hotels and restaurants that are so dependent upon the Broadway crowds and are so heavily impacted by the fact that the theater's just been shut down since March. And, you know, it was interesting also to hear, in my opinion, to hear him talk about things like, you know, sets just being frozen in Seattle, a set that was on, on tour. And it just, it's sitting in the theater gathering dust in Seattle because they haven't been able to send in a crew of a bunch of guys to tear it down yet. And, you know, so then they don't even know, you know, if they're going to recover that set and, and ship it back to where it's going to go or, or if they're just going to sell it off in pieces or if that, if that show will go back on tour. They don't, you know, there's all these question marks that are up in the air that have to be figured out. Because remember, guys, that by the time things get up and going again, most likely in the fall or late summer at the earliest, you know, people will have been away from it for a year. A lot of people will have gone out and found other jobs because they had no choice. Some people will be unavailable. Some people may have decided to retire from the arts because they're making better money and, and it's, it's more, you know, steady for their family. Some people will come back, but they may have to, you know, some shows will have to have casting changes. So we get into all that kind of stuff in the show, and it's actually really insightful, uh, interesting to hear his perspective on how all that works behind the scenes. So I think you guys are really going to love this. So without further ado, this is our interview, Episode 4, with Eric Falkenstein. This is John O'Tock. For fans, by fans, this is Genre Talk. Questions or comments? Find a Genre Talk on Facebook at Genre Talk Podcast. Now, back to the show. All right. Eric Falkenstein is a lawyer turned producer who's become a major figure on Broadway and in touring companies over the past two decades. He started out working with Woody Allen's collaborator, Gene Dumanian, at her production company before launching his own company, Spark Productions. His credits on Broadway include The Crucible, Long Day's Journey Into Night, Network, Hello Dolly, The Color Purple, The Miracle Worker, and many more familiar names, as well as new shows that you maybe haven't heard of. He was also one of the producers of the movie The Butler that Lee Daniels put out. It was quite successful. Eric, welcome to Genre Talk. Thanks, uh, Brian. Thanks for that intro, and nice to be here. So tell us what you geeked out over as a kid and now. What do you geek out over? <laughs> People assume it was theater. I wasn't really a theater geek, although my parents did uh, take me to theater at a pretty young age with some regularity. But as I geeked out for sure over two big things, baseball cards and coins. And uh, they, it came from my dad and my uncle, and I got to know a lot about – I'm not going to give the decade, <laughs> but I'll, I, I got to know baseball cards and, and players pretty well for, for a period of time. And I remember actually watching virtually every Yankees game because I spent a few years in the Bronx before we moved further from New York City. But I also got to know a lot about American coins. Uh, not not world coins at all, actually, but but American coins from this, basically the seventh, the late 
hundred right up through the 20th century. Very cool. Actually, my grandfather started me out with a, a penny collection and a, uh, I did the state quarters for a while and I kind of wish I'd continued it. All that stuff kind of gets, got ignored when I was a kid. Stamps too, I started out with and none of them I kept up with and a lot of that stuff's gotten lost over the years. So it's really kind of, I feel kind of like an idiot. I should have kept up with it, but. Uh, well, I, I, hope uh, you, I hope you find it and, and pennies are fun. I, um, they, if they're everyone, if they're really old, they, they can be, you can very easily put together a collection uh, with like a $2 book that you can stick them into and a few of them are valuable. But what I was going to say is I was in the bank not too long ago and I heard this, it was right before the pandemic actually. And, uh, and I heard clink, clink. And I looked around, this woman was dropping coins into that machine, but it was not the sound of quarters and stuff. They, she was putting silver dollars in. Oh. And I said, stop, stop, stop. I think her husband had passed is what she said. And she just started collecting stuff to dump in and turn into to paper money. And I thought, you got to stop. So the bank manager took them out for her, gave them back, and we sent her to a collectible store to sell them. And she probably made, you know, she probably made 50 times what she would have um, had she gotten her little, her, her, her couple of bucks spit out uh, at the other end of that. That was kind of fun. People don't, people don't know what they have. I mean, when my grandmother died, she had a, a collection of, of salt and pepper shakers that my mom just threw away and it turned out a lot of those were with a lot of money and, and i was like, yeah oh. yeah you know my my dad had uh had baseball cards from the 40s that uh his mom threw out and he knows what he had and he looked them up and he said life would be a little different right now with all the cards i had but in any case um <laughs> he's uh he says that with a smile, so he's got a good yeah. perspective on it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like the bane of every child, right? Like that thing that they had back in the day. For me, it was comic books, you know, the comic book collection. Don't tell me they're gone. Yeah, they're, you know, luckily most of them aren't. But, you, you know, there's always that one comic book or two that got lost, got torn, you know, got traded off for something else, and you just kind of wish you, you still had it. But, uh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I've, I've taken back from my parents' garage that I used to leave there that I don't leave there anymore because I'm afraid that's what's going to happen to it. So I think uh, eventually they're just like, hey, you know, if you don't want it, I'm not going to keep it, you know, so. <laughs> as long as they tell you before they people. chuck. <laughs> Everybody yeah. out there, as long as they tell you before they chuck it. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Well, look, so, you know, you said you weren't really in into theater necessarily as a kid, but when did you get involved in theater and your interest developed? Well, you know, it, it really was, Brian, this is not just to talk about when we met, but um, but at the camp, uh, at the great Echo Lake up in the Adirondacks, I agreed to do a show, I think, because I had a pretty resonant baritone even as a relatively, uh, you know, sort of early teen. And, and I, I liked performing, and so I, I did sort of become one of the many theater stars in a tiny camp that pretty meaningless um, stardom in summer camp, but it was, uh, it was, it was really enjoyable. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really pursue acting. I always had that interest and I, I studied uh, a lot of social related studies and ultimately was sociology and a peace studies major in college, but I did, I did have the interest in drama. So, um, so as it turns out, um, I, I've, I've basically, uh, although I have done other, other entertainment type, Productions. I've basically drifted towards, if not social impact, certainly sort of social issue type theater. A lot, you know, obviously Miracle Worker you mentioned, which which is the the incredible story of fortitude of of someone who was not able to see, not able to hear, and for a while not able to speak, 
um, as everyone knows. And, and then she went on to an incredibly rich life and, and uh, as an advocate and other things. And that's just one of the many sort of types of stories that I, that I you know, choose to tell. So uh, that's a little more than you bargained for with your question, but it gives you a full answer, that's for sure. No, no. I mean, we'll get into some of that, too, because I know you also do socially conscious documentaries, and we'll get into that a little bit and talk about that. But, but I just kind of wanted to get, give people an idea of, you know, now you're kind of known as a Broadway producer, but you, you didn't always start out in theater necessarily, and that's fine. I mean, camp, we, met at, we met, what he's referring to is we met at a, a place called Camp Echo Lake, and I, I was a counselor there one summer in college, and Eric and I were co-counselors at a, a, a team of ca- a pair of cabins. And so that's where we met, and we, we did some collaborating on music and things, and that's where our friendship came about. So that's how I know him. So I've known him for, you know, 30 years, I don't know, for a very long time, late 80s. So he went from being a student at that camp to being a counselor. So that's what he's referring to. Camp Echo Lake, is it still around anymore? Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it, for the first time in 75 years, it didn't really operate. It had a few uh, alumni up. Uh, in the cabins last year, but for the first time in 75 years, uh, exactly 75 years, it didn't operate. They're they're thriving. They I, I don't know. There are parts of it you wouldn't recognize anymore because they've they've grown so so beautifully. Yeah, it's a it's a well, no doubt. And Warrensburg has really grown up around it. It's in Warrensburg, New York, near Lake George. For those who are curious about it, but anyway, I'm sure you can Google it and find out if you really want to know about Camp Echo Lake. But it was actually it's, you know, it's a really <laughs> It's a, it's a, it was a nice facility back then. I'm sure it's even nicer now, and, and that's kind of our, our background. So you practiced law for a time. I know after you got out of college, you went to law school. You even served in, in one of the courts where the, uh, some of the original al-Qaeda terrorists were, were tried. You were clerking there, as I recall. And then, but then you ended up doing producing. So how did you, you move from law into producing? Yeah, I call it a, a real circuitous route. And uh, so this recovering lawyer uh, started out, like you said, I, I, I did what most people at my law school did. when, And I went to clerk for a judge, like you said, in the Southern District of New York, in, in downtown Manhattan. And then I would say probably uh, as in most of, again, most of my classmates, schoolmates go one of two routes. They either, uh, maybe three, they, some go into the academic world, some go uh, into big law firms or corporations, and then the third large group goes into nonprofit work. And I did a mix. Uh, I, I, I did a lot of unpaid work just because I was interested in it on human rights, civil rights. Uh, and I also got to work for this this really, I think, kind firm, at least as far as New York goes, that let me do a lot of pro bono work for the first few years. And when they sort of said, uh, after a few years, it's time to buckle down, I knew it was time for me to kind of move on. And soon um, I got I got trained a little bit in entertainment law. And then I was hired, as you already mentioned, um, to to come into as sort of a producer with a with a legal background, but mostly to produce and advise former producer of, of Woody Allen. But we ended up uh, moving away, they, they kind of split off. And we ended up doing other films and other plays. And then after a few years there, it sort of became clear that really what I wanted to do was have my own company. So uh, Spark Productions, although it's not particularly important what the name is because it's just a it's just a vehicle, but uh, that's the name of the company that I've been operating uh, under since 2003. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I, I have to admit, most of my most of my knowledge of producers, and I think like a lot of people, comes from like movies and television, right? You know, we have an idea of what a producer is in in, in those areas, but what what is a you know what is a theater producer do for those people out there who don't really 
No. You know, how's it different? Sure. Producing a film in tele- or television. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting that, that you bring up that question um, today because what's nowadays there is a huge difference. I mean, now during the pandemic, there's a huge difference in what producers are doing because we uh, and I and I do mostly theater, a little bit of television, and a little bit of film still. But um, theater producers are are mostly just developing right now, and I'll and I'll get into more about the difference in general. And of course, film can operate uh, more easily. And, and so can television, as long as the sets are kept extremely, you know, cautiously safe. Um, but, but the difference to some degree is that a theater producer is the person who comes up either with an idea and commissions the people, if they're not doing it themselves, commissions the people to create it, whether it's just a playwright in the case of a play or in the case of a musical, you, you, there are three big roles to fill. And that's the book writer, that, that, the libretto or the story right, the dialogue, the music, the, the orchestrations, uh, and the, uh, which are both orchestrations and composing of the music. And then you've got to get someone to do the, um, the lyrics. So we break it down to be a little more articulate about it into the composing or the music you hear, the lyrics, everyone knows what that is, and then the libretto or the story and the dialogue. So once you do that and you have, you you basically are going to support uh, your team by having, giving them what they need, basically by by having them give you drafts. And if they want to hear what they've got in readings or workshops or in developmental productions at small theaters around the country, um, you are in charge of raising the money, of hiring the rest of the team, uh, including the director, of course, a critical component. Um, And ultimately, you'll be responsible not only for the financing, but also the, the, uh, the decisions on the other end, which is when to, when you're returning, hopefully returning capital to the investors, when to, when to open, officially open the show, close the show and where to throw the opening night party. That's sort of the legendary thing on Broadway, but, uh, but also you're, you're also entering into all the contracts with managers and with, with the performers, of course, the theater owner, uh, etc. So it's a little bit of everything. And the way that I describe whenever I'm sort of on a little panel or speaking to a, a group of young aspiring theater people, I usually say, think of the, the producer as the person who kind of is the diplomat, the person who's kind of putting everyone together and hopefully uh, just staying out of the way while they do their thing. Oh, wow. That, that's so informative. Thank you for that. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, I just, that, just that answer, I just learned a bunch uh, bunch of things I didn't know, man. Yeah, yeah it, that's that's great. This is what I love about this show, is is digging into other other people's crafts and just learning about you know what they do. I guess it, another question I have is like, so you know, in movie production, obviously a, a ton of names for producers. I see this also in, in in like you know, in the theater, are all these different producers kind of, you know, are you kind of divvying up that kind of work, or how does it come about where you get like a bunch of different type of like a little bunch of different producers for like one show is everyone doing the sure, same thing sure. or yeah well it's a tiny bit more background that, that i should yeah. give which is that you know there's a big difference in the, i mean if you were to kind of say broadway um is sort of the analog to hollywood you, you, you know you you can say that and, and you might say independent film which of course is non-studio right non mm-hmm. there's no distributor on board that doesn't really have an analog. Um, so to break theater down for the audience, and, and I think a very, you know, in a very sort of concise way is to, say, to look at it like this. Most of the commercial, unlike Hollywood, where 
studios, obviously, in that general area of L.A., um, operate. And, of course, there's production in other states and there's production in Canada. But most of the, of the actual, not only production, but, of course, the exhibition of, of commercial theater, most of it is on the strip or off Broadway um, in New York. And it's because of the cultural background of the city, et cetera, that, and the size of it that so much of it thrives. So there are 41 Broadway theaters which somewhat loosely are defined as, as the theaters uh, basically north of 500 seats in, in, a, in an area that's more or less, it's a little more complicated, but in the lower 60s in Manhattan on the west side between roughly 6th and 8th Avenue down to about 41st Street. And, um, and that, Broadway is actually sort of a, um, it, it's a, it's a, con, a controlled uh, label. Um, you, you can't officially call yourself Broadway unless you're, presenting a show in one of those 41 theaters. And the main issue is that you're not eligible for the Tony Award in any other theater on the planet unless you are in an open and run for a certain length of time in a Broadway theater. And obviously the Tony Awards are, you know, are, are the main marketing tool of, you know, and certainly the most, most known award for theater in, in America. So to say that um, most of the commercial theater s- starts in New York is, is true on, on a large level, uh, on a larger level, but oftentimes what we need to do, in fact, almost always what we need to do is to quietly develop things away from the spotlight of Broadway because the Broadway critics are tougher than they are and throughout most of the country, and they have a lot of power. I, I think to some degree film exists outside of, uh, or to a larger degree, outside of critical response. So, you know, to, to theater, the, the audiences respond typically to, to what the critics write their reviews than they do more, uh, more so than, than people who go to films. I think that if there's a Bond film, even if it's kind of panned by, you know, by critics, there's a lot of people out there who just want to go see Bond. It doesn't matter as much, for example. Um, but, um, but, uh, but to try to answer your question now that I gave that background, there, there are tours that, that head out around the country that are also stop in roadhouses and places that are commercial theaters. And then there are re- what we call regional theaters that are very, very good theaters that are run in many of the big cities by an art- a very talented artistic director. Things can start there. Things can move there, et cetera. But that's not commercial theater. That's nonprofit. So um, all of that to say that, um, that when you want to start with a, with a theater production, um, very few start on Broadway. A lot of them start what we call off-Broadway, which is most of the rest of the theaters in the New York area or even the smaller theater called off-off-Broadway. And they, and they develop until you think it's ready for Broadway. And then you take the bigger, you know, the bigger step or the much more expensive step and, and uh, the one that, that you know, is going to involve a lot more risk um, on a lot of different levels. So I, I, want, I did want to give that background to sort of No, that's great. Yeah. And now – yeah, because and now because uh, Brian and I are basically the same age, of course, I've lost the thread of where I'm supposed to come back to and, and directly answer your question. Oh, so no worries. Yeah. No, 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 no worries. You answered. No. Yeah, you answered it, I think. Yes. Oh, really? I, I, yeah. actually, I actually think that I, I started to give so much background that I sort of lost the, the real point. But, um, but it is important to know that there is great theater in so many cities around the country, um, especially at these regional theaters. There are several in L.A., there are several in Chicago, there, you know, there are many cities like that in D.C. and many other places that are just, just create top-notch theater or 
present top-notch theater that came from New York and sometimes London. So, um, so theater is a business that, as a, in a commercial world, exists overwhelmingly on Broadway. In fact, Broadway is a billion-dollar industry when we're not shut down. Um, so uh, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a giant industry, and it fuels, and this is part of the problem with New York right now and certainly Midtown, Midtown West, is that you know people come to Broadway and it's and it's a destination. So the restaurants, sometimes the nearby museums and the hotels and other service organizations or service providers are all hurting when Broadway's not operating. It's difficult for much of New York to imagine coming back fully until the theater comes back. Yeah, and we'll get into all that in a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. It so you've worked on as an associate producer on like a, a lot of I mean, a, lo- a lot of stuff like you love looking at the crucible frankie and johnny uh, in the claire de lune um but like as you mentioned you you know at some point you started your own you know your own production company uh sparks uh what was that like i guess that first production that you kind of took on from like beginning to end you know that the, the one that was you know that first project that passion project that that you took on as a producer that was your first big production Sure. Okay. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose that thread. And I'm going to tell you that I did. I don't think that you're being kind, but I don't think I answered your question because you asked about these, this big group of producers and I was giving background. And what I meant to say was in commercial theater. Yeah. Um, so now that we've defined that there, there typically is one, two, sometimes three, what we would call lead producers and they're really making the decisions. And then we have something called co-producers and sometimes associate producers. And what they do is typically they're, they're not involved so much in the production or the development, but they will bring part of the capital uh, through themselves mm-hmm. or other investors. And they will get, you know, they'll get to consult and they'll get invited to, you know, to dress rehearsals or, or, and certainly opening night and other things. And they'll get credit. They will be eligible for the Tony award if their name is listed above the title. But when you do see that long block, you can be sure, you can be pretty sure that the first one, sometimes two or three names are the ones who are quote the lead producers, the one on the hook and the one who, who has to make the decision. So I did want to actually properly button that up <laughs> and, uh, and, and see if, and if you had any other questions about that. So what was the first show that you did that on that you were like a lead producer? So, yeah. So I had done some off Broadway. I think I, I took things pretty conservatively in terms of what, jumping in. Some people want to get right in there. Um, but, but the first one that I was lead on Broadway um, was, was bridge and tunnel. And it's not the sort of conventional uh, term that we, that's often heard in New York and I think in San Francisco or even LA, but um, it's this beautiful love letter to New York and to diversity, uh, Sarah Jones wrote and performed a, and a, it was astonishing, and actually I'm stealing that word from about 10 of the critics, uh, this array of characters that she morphs into with, with almost no pause. It is amazing. She, she goes, and they're all immigrants. They, they're basically immigrants giving their forms of poetry, and a lot of, a lot of it's in prose, but um, about their experiences living in New York it takes place in Queens. And she has one, such an, let's put it this way, such an uncanny ability to inhabit and, and of course, create both the mannerisms and the, uh, the accents of people from all around the world that Meryl Streep saw her at a benefit years ago, uh, probably 16, 17 years ago, and said, I have to get involved in producing you. And she did. 
she helped us produce it downtown off Broadway. And then when we, um, she did something very honor, I mean, incredibly sort of uh, selfless. She said that she didn't want to, you know, sort of be you know, featured and take the spotlight away. So she just quietly helped with the Broadway production. Uh, this is in 2006. And, um, and she just sort of supported uh, Sarah and the show. And, um, and Sarah got incredible reviews. The thing that's, I think, to be, I mean, her, her talent's astonishing. And she just got a Netflix series that'll probably be coming out fairly soon. The thing that I think is most, uh, something to be most proud of is that what she'll do is not only inhabit in this way that very few actors on earth can do, all these different characters, she gives a sense of the, the patriotic nature of these hardworking people who are having mostly tough times with little money, but who are uh, so proud to have either been naturalized as citizens or to be on their way to citizenship. And it's, it's just a, it's a really fantastic way to kind of celebrate uh, one part of America in a very positive light. There's really, there's really, you know, very little negativity in it, which is pretty remarkable. So there you go. Um, that that was my first venture as a lead producer on Broadway, um, and and definitely a passion project because everyone who saw it, and I don't say this about all my shows, and I probably shouldn't talk about those shows here, but everyone who saw that show was somewhere between blown away and, in some cases, uh, they said that their life was their life was changed. Right. Well, now you talked about how producers kind of initiate shows and get people to write them. But, you know, what are, what are, besides that, what are the ways you go about finding out what production you want to produce? I mean, you brought back a lot of revivals. So that's been really cool. So I assume there are shows that you hear about that you say, we need, we need to do that again, or it's a good time to bring that back. But how do you, I mean, what's the, what's the various ways that you, you, you know, find your project? Yeah, you know, that, that's an, another great point because I have a, a really good example. Um, there's a lot of times, there are a lot of times where you say, oh, that hasn't been around in a long time. It's a good play. Let's do it. But there are definitely moments in, uh, in history that you say, whoa, this play, you know, re- would re- reflect on, or we'd reflect on what's going on right now with, with this play from history, uh, particularly with these classics from people like Arthur Miller. So around the same time, 2005, 2006, we were in the midst of the wars in uh, the war in Iraq, Afghanistan. And you may remember, we had problems where enough equipment was not protecting. They basically, you know, there were, there were news reports, I want to say really neutral, but there were news reports that clearly the troops were not always getting the protective equipment they needed. And there were all kinds of problems, including sadly, troops that were killed because they weren't outfit, well, absolute, outfitted well enough. And there was a comment made about, you know, how in, in the midst of war, these kinds of things happen. And I thought to myself, wow, that is, is, is echoing kind of uh, in, in a very similar way what Arthur Miller got at with all my sons. So I went to this great old, I mean, you know, one of the legendary, so lucky that he was still around, one of the legendary uh, agents of all time, the guy, from ICM named Sam Cohn. And uh, he agreed. And um, I, I've been lucky to be uh, an associate producer a few years earlier on The Crucible. So I had gotten a little time with, with Arthur when he was alive, which was incredibly lucky. But, uh, but I think, I don't know if Sam considered that important or not, but he 
put me together with Arthur's daughter, who's the mo- um, his youngest daughter, who's the, the, the sort of the active heir to and the person who's sort of uh, who kind of oversees his estate and, and uh, his intellectual property. And, and we we connected well and came up with um, with directors and and uh, and other creatives that we thought would be good for it. And in 2008, we mounted on Broadway the revival of All My Sons, and it was uh, came together as a fascinating cast. Um, in order of uh, when they signed on, I think when they were billed, was John Lithgow, who played the patriarch, and Diane Weist, who played his wife, and the son who we see, the one who survived the war, was Patrick um, Wilson, and Katie Holmes played his girlfriend. So it was, a, it was a really momentous thing. Actually, she was married to Tom Cruise at the time, so there was a lot of coverage uh, every time he appeared at rehearsal or theaters. But, but it made a real statement. You know, I remember one of the reviews said, you know, anyone could see why a producer would want to bring this play back now. So, so yeah. Well, I it was actually, it was, it, was, it was Katie's Broadway. I went to that. You know, you know I came out to New York and saw that show. It was, yes, it was, yes. uh, it was Katie's, Katie's debut on Broadway, too. We don't want to underplay that. I don't know. You're right. All the others had been on Broadway and and she and, you know, there was all kinds of, you know, all kinds of crazy talk and and normal talk about, you know, you know, this this first timer, you know, being up there with these great Patrick had proven himself, too. And there were a lot of great other actors, by the way, many of them gone on to even more uh, big things. But there were a lot of great actors uh, besides the four headliners in that play. And she acquitted herself well. I mean, if that's, if that's the way you'd put it, she gave that character who, is, who starts off as sort of sweet and unidimensional and, and becomes sort of a little defiant and, um, and many other things. And, uh, and no one, none of the major critics said, you know, what the hell was she doing up there? She, she really did hold her own. And, um, and that was a great, I think it was a really great moment uh, for her to, you know, to be considered someone who, who got on stage and was un, you know, unfazed by the fact that she was surrounded by somewhat legendary talent and, um, and, and, and didn't, you know, she didn't freeze, you know, she didn't blow lines. She worked hard and she, and she did a nice job. And that's, that's really uh, she did. sort of a special moment. In fact, um, I'll, I'll reveal it now. It's kind of then, but the only person at the time, at least that I could find, certainly of the major characters or any of the creatives that were still alive, it, it had been, it was the first ever play that won the Tony Award. It, it was in 1947. It was Arthur Miller's first Tony. It was the first. It was the first Tony awarded to a play. I haven't talked about this in a long time, so I think I'm right about that. <laughs> I'm a double check. But um, but in any case, um, one of the only people alive from that in the 40s was the woman who had played Kate's uh, Katie's role, and she lived in Switzerland now, and she was I think already in her 80s. And so I reached out to her and she wrote a beautiful letter to the cast and to her that I read shortly before we opened. And, um, and it was, it was really resonant. I mean, it was, it was Kazan. I mean, you know, the legendary Kazan, although, you know, the partly sort of controversial Kazan as well, but who had directed it on Broadway in, in 47. And uh, it, it really was, it was momentous and it was, and it was Arthur Miller's first real hit. Um, so it launched him. And then two years later in 49, he had his seismic moment, not his first, not his last either, I mean, but his seismic moment um, with Death of a Salesman. Um, and, of course, he's considered yeah. one of our very small handful of greats to this day. Yeah. Well, it was a great production, and she de- – I mean, I, I didn't I – didn't, I never thought she was out of place on that cast. She fit in perfectly. She did a great job. So, you know, it was it was really fun for, for me to get a chance to come out and see one of your shows. And, 
Of course, I'm always happy when I get to go see Broadway because I don't get out there very often. So that was also fun. But you know, uh, it was an excellent production. I, I and I, you know, I mean, you know, I'm John Lithgow and Diane Weist alone—they're just you know, incredibly talented people. So to get to see them live in person and in that environment, you know, it's a, it's it's always a you know, there's so many things you can hide in film. There's so many things that they can do by re- doing retakes and 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 keep you know multiple takes and things. But you can't do it when you're doing a live show. It's like that's it. Yeah. So you're like, I want to see if, if you want to see if these people really are as good as you think they are. Go see them live because you get to see and they and they truly were. They lived up to their name in every way. Yeah. You know, there's a there are two things that that come to mind by saying that. I mean, one of them is I've been in a few events where where MC duties were shared by a film person and a theater person, and it's shocking in in a few cases. I don't have that many examples, but. Uh, where the theater person is so at ease in front of the audience and the film person was, was quite shy, not always, obviously, but was shy and less confident and uh, all these things. And it's par- partially because of that training, I think. But, um, and a lot of theater people go on to do a lot of film work and vice versa, but still. And the other thing, Brian, <laughs> is that I don't, I don't recall, was I out of town when you went to see the show? Because that had a long run. Uh, I don't remember giving you a backstage tour, and I apologize. <laughs> no, you did not give us a backstage tour, but you did help us get discount tickets. You oh, well, you, you met us that you met us at the museum briefly that day, yeah. or the day yeah. before, and we chatted. But you had something going on with your family that you you weren't really free to kind of do stuff. So, yeah, um, I'm very offended that you didn't give me a backstage tour. But no, it's it's, well, it's totally cool. And next time I come to one of your shows, we'll just make up for it. It's not a problem. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, when I wasn't the pandemic's there, over, I, I'll come back there. I'm happy there, to so. do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's no problem. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the other thing that I think about when you're talking about Katie and, and her holding her own is by this time she was married to Tom, uh, Tom Cruise, as you said. So she was kind of used to getting a lot of attention and being overshadowed by somebody else at that point. I imagine that probably helped her just stand up in the, in, in the whatever intimidation she might have felt about Lithgow and Weister, Wilson or anybody else, she was kind of used to having to forge her own path at that point because she was so used to being overshadowed by Tom Cruise. But I have a feeling that was probably a help to her. I don't know. We, we'd have to ask her, I guess. But yeah, anyway. No, that's a good uh, question. I don't know. Uh, and I, But I will tell yeah. you that um, it certainly stirred, the, you know, that <laughs> our street, 45th Street, was always, was always a buzz. And I can only, all I can tell you is that, you know, it's not like I got to know them that well, but I will tell you that they were certainly very, you know, very, very um, kind to all the people around them, which, which uh, is not all that commonplace, in, um, you know, in, in the film world. So we, we had a good experience. So I, I can't say more than that, but, uh, but, I, but I can't complain about, about anything that happened with, with any of that cast. They were, they were a delight uh, from top to bottom. That's awesome. Well, so... I kind of talked about this earlier, and I, you may have already kind of answered it, and there may not be a – there's probably a good feeling not a really easy answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and that is how long does it take to, typically to go from workshopping to live production? I mean, if you if – you, let's talk about a show where you're, you're targeting Broadway anyway, because some shows you, you do, you, 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 you probably have – we don't know if this is going to make it to Broadway, but we'd like to see it. But the other ones, you, you really are shooting for Broadway. So let's talk about those. How long does it typically take when you, you've got that target clearly in mind to go from workshopping to live? Well, I'll be particularly encouraging and, and, and start with a play. And you can just add whatever you would imagine. Um, and, and it can vary because it can vary. But um, when you don't have 
to, to do choreography, you don't have to do orchestrations, you don't have to do arrangements, you don't have to compose anything, and you don't have to come up with, with, uh, with lyrics. It's a, it's a much quicker process. So by and large, doesn't mean that there yeah. are plays, straight plays, when we say what means no music or at least no, um, you know, no songs, um, even if there's a little underscore. Um, the, you know, there, I can't say that there's an average, but I can tell you that, that of course, playwrights work at different speeds. I, I would say, though, that it is often the case that I've found that um, if you have a play from a playwright, whether they're uh, living or gone, you know, you can probably get it on its feet fairly quickly um, with with whatever tweaks you might try to to work them on them with and have and have a play up within six to eight months. Again, that's that's basically a complete play. If you're starting from yeah. scratch and you you're talking to a playwright who said, "I have an idea to write a play about the Middle East," you know, let's say, uh, whatever it is, uh, you know, I would say the average playwright, if we do want to talk like that would probably take a couple of months to give you a draft. Some of them take obviously longer. Some of them take years. And then, at, and then you would want to have a reading. And when we simply say a reading, we just mean as, as basic as a handful of people watching actors sitting on chairs with, with music stands to hold their scripts or not even music stands. So that's a simple reading. And, you know, I, I realize that most normal people have never seen a reading because, you know, it's, it's, it's a developmental process, not a finished product. So um, sure. it, it, it helps because the actors are talented and you get to hear these actors and voices. Uh, you get to hear these characters' voices. And sometimes you decide that's the wrong actor for that part or that's, a, that's the perfect actor. And, I, and, and so just a quick aside, I, I'm working for a while on this play about Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And this one guy um, who who came in to play the Bobby Kennedy role um, did that perfect work where they they um, he uh, actually nailed the character, did a, a nice job in the accent, and did not in any in any way character uh, make a caricature, you know, because Bobby Kennedy was explosive and 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 certainly is iconic. So when you get those in a reading, it's pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, so hopefully he'll be available when the play is available, uh, ready. And there are others too. But, um, but I would say that on a play, again, no, no real music, that you probably can go from idea to production within a year. Um, and it's pretty rare to do it before then because you generally want to at least have a workshop, if not uh, a developmental production. And to say, and I'll also say that most plays do, in fact, even if they have a workshop, then schedule to get get some work on the play in front of a live audience out of New York, far outside New York, at least, let's say, as far as New Jersey, Connecticut, upstate New York. You want to stay away from the New York critics who who are, again, tough and they can really decide your fate. So um, you can get it going within a year, but, um, but oftentimes it does take multiple years and then add probably 50% for the average musical. Gotcha. Okay. Well, how do you go about deciding and booking the right theater for a production? Like, say you, you've got a show, you're ready to go to Broadway. So what is, I mean, obviously there's a space issue, and, you know, you need a certain size stage for Les Miserables and a certain size stage for All My Sons, and, and those, are, those are the obvious factors. But, I mean, what are some of the considerations and the processes of figuring out what's the right theater besides just what's available? Well, within Broadway, it's tight. Uh, it's very tight. I mean, there are countless off-Broadway and Broadway spaces, um, but there 
are 41 Broadway, and of those, some of them are owned by nonprofit theaters like Lincoln Center. So they don't really rent out often, if at all. So, um, so there are fewer than 41, not to mention uh, the, the long-running shows that you and I all know, uh, or, you know, certainly were long-running again before the pandemic. So it really is a very small number of theaters that are available on Broadway. In the 1970s, when New York was just devastated financially, the, the theaters had a lot of vacancies. But um, for the past, I mean, I've, I've essentially been producing for about 20 years. Um, I did, again, I did some, uh, some advising and legal work in the industry before that. But for the past quarter century, uh, and, and really shortly after the, the, the second British invasion, we like to call it the Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of invasion with his giant mega hit musicals, Broadway started to, to really roll. Um, and I think the other, the other factor is that a lot of second career people started getting involved before, and to give just one more nod to that other question that you asked, before I would say the 80s, and I'm not sure exactly when, you would normally find one, two, three, four producers listed um, above the title uh, as producers. And then as things both got more expensive and as they got more prolific and more people got involved in producing, um, you started to see those bigger billing blocks. So uh, that's right. to answer that, that question a little more too. So um, the decision-making process is, A, what's available, because sometimes there are zero theaters available for when you want to go. And then you might have to either look at London, um, taking it to a, to a theater outside of Broadway or taking it outside of New York. And the process uh, often is queuing up, you know, and the theater owners, and there are just a handful of theater owners, have to decide what they want to put in their theaters. Uh, typically, um, you know, musicals are, are, they cost more, but they also have uh, bigger upsides. You, you might say that plays are lower risk, uh, but, they, but they usually have lower, lower upsides. And, um, and typically also, if you have a giant star, um, you're going to get a theater ahead of, uh, of something else that's equally, and sometimes some people might say more worthy, but it doesn't have a star. So, you know, when I got um, when I got a great play by a great playwright and a great director and a great cast, I got a theater. But um, but there are there are always these days, you know, producers who are circling and can't unfortunately lock it down. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned, the, you know, having that that great cast, because certainly that's one of the things that, you know, for myself, who's, who's not like, a, you know, I haven't been to the theater often and. And, and usually I do kind of look for, like, you know, one of the first things I, I watched, I uh, went to a play and watched was, uh, you know, uh, Third Good, you know, with, with Lawrence Fishburne here in the uh, Geffen Playhouse, you know, this was like over a decade ago. Uh, and that was like the draw for me, you know, I wanted to see Lawrence Fishburne do a thing, right? So, and you work with like tons of stars like Whoopi Goldberg and John Lithgow, Jeff Daniels, Ed, you know, Ed Harris, like, how do you recruit such talent? You know, is it? Is it the material, or is it like you have the right director? What what really helps you, you know, land those kind of stars? Well, interestingly enough, I think certainly it varies by star. So you know, it's interesting. Um, there are there are actors who have said, um, "I care ninety nine percent about the material." Others who say, I, "You know, I've got to have the director of my dreams," and and others uh, who think to themselves, "It's really about the topic, regardless of the you know of the." you know, of the material itself. 
Um, in terms of, I mean, before you give me credit for landing all those stars, I, I have partners, and in the case, for example, of Jeff Daniels, <laughs> that's a, that, you know, Scott Rudin uh, put together um, uh, Jeff Daniels and, um, and with, uh, with Aaron Sorkin as the writer and, uh, and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I was lucky enough in this, in this case as a co-producer to just be along for the ride. So um, I get um, no credit for, uh, for landing some of the stars that, that um, you may find as part of, you know, part of what I've, what I've been a co-producer on. But yeah, in the case of, in the case of those that, uh, who I did ultimately quote unquote cast, um, it, it often is a matter of if you don't know them personally, and there's a limited number of stars who I can call. So you typically end up going either through your director if they have a relationship or through their agent or manager. And it's a matter at that point, most of the, most of the time of the package and the package uh, in theater is overwhelmingly the, the combination of the play and uh and the director i'd say that that 90 percent of actors i don't know and can't call will make their decisions based on that some of them might factor in other actors who are attached so they you know that they kind of feel that they're the right match with them or some of them may kind of um figure in um if it's just sort of time to to, to add a, a theater a theater experience and this is what's available actually that happens on occasion they're sort of like okay this is happening I want to do a play now, but, um, but overwhelmingly it's, it's that tandem of, of, uh, of material and director. I think we were talking earlier about COVID and how it's kind of impacted Broadway and, you know, it's kind of shut down completely since like early last year. How's that, you know, I guess, how's that impacting you now, you know, today, obviously it being shut down and how have you had to kind of, I guess, adapt and change to, to, to the unfortunate events of like, you know, 2020 and that's still going on today. Sure. Um, it, it's massive. I mean, um, you know, we, there are two big elements besides the financing and, you know, all the business stuff, but there are two big elements to, to producing. And, and one of them is the actual production, the actual getting something on its feet. But of course, um, before you can do that, you have to develop. So development has been largely unfazed. I mean, instead of readings where we're all in the room together, they're on Zoom and other platforms, but uh, writers, you know, have had just quiet time to work. And so there is, there's a lot of development. But in terms of production, the first thing we kind of dealt with, and I think it kind of settled in as um, something to just kind of wait and see. But for a few months, we were dealing with, okay, when, when can we reopen? How are we communicating with the investors on how we're going to, you know, safeguard what we can of their investment and all those kinds of things. And then by the time we hit the summer surge, um, you know, there weren't many more updates. We didn't know when the heck, you know, there was no vaccine at that point, only hope um, for vaccine. So we really couldn't tell anyone when we might be back as, as, as far as, you know, people making guesses. It just, it didn't mean anything. So, so we were really frozen in that sense. The vaccine's obviously given hope and we're still figuring out now whether you know, both the governor, the mayor, um, and uh, all of those who could have either risk or liability are going to be okay with it, including the unions who want to protect their actors, of course. Um, I think that I think that basically um, it has devastated not um, not the the future of Broadway at all, um, with the exception of one risk that that you know, I mean, we all now know that that in the future there may be another pandemic, but um, it has devastated 
the businesses that rely on the operation of Broadway, so I already talked about those that are nearby, like restaurants and hotels, but in the, at the same time, the, the lesser kind of thought of things, the set shops, the ones that they may have done other things besides build sets for theaters, but there's been no business for them, of course. And, um, and the lighting shops, the sound, the sound uh, shops uh, that, that rent packages, um, the, you know, all kinds of different, uh, of different individuals and businesses that are completely without demand. And, um, and some of them have rolled up their, you know, their shops. I believe that the institution is probably going to be as healthy as it ever was in, in, a, in a little more time, you know, probably sometime within the next one to two years, it'll be back and roaring. The problem is the human toll, right? I mean, there is no, I, I say this generically because probably because of the Wizard of Oz, but you, you know, those actors who gave up their apartments in New York and moved back to their parents' house or their, you know, their grand, whoever, and, um, and gave up their career that's a human toll. I mean, whether they become an actor again or whether they, they've moved on to something else. And I think I just read yesterday about, about a choreographer who gave up choreography and, and started, um, started working in, um, in, in um, some, some kind of, uh, some kind of pharmaceutical um, business. So it, it, that's what I really think it is. It's that there's a lot of pain now, a lot of destroyed careers and, and lives um, but the but theater itself, um, I think, will be back because I think there will still be demand for that kind of entertainment. Do you think there'll be a change in what like the theater is? You know, when you come back, like can the audiences can the audiences got to expect the same? Uh, you know what they had, you know, pre-pandemic, or you know what's the theater going to be like? Do you think you know later on, hopefully this year when things get back to normal? It's going to be a tentative start. It's definitely not going to be the, the, the governor's not going to say, okay, you're good to go. And then a week later, theater's going to be open. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some of which are obvious, right? I mean, you, yeah. we need the okay to start casting and rehearsing. We need to recast, right? Because some people will have moved on one way or another to that's probably the less, lesser issue because for the first time in the history, and I'm talking, I don't even know how far, I mean, I have a fairly good sense of, of Broadway history. But I don't really know when the first shows, multiple shows, were running on what we call the main stem. I mean, probably goes back, um, you know, to the to the early 1800s. I, I actually really don't know. But um, but the first time ever in the history of Broadway, before it was even called Broadway, there is there is not a single ticket sold for a single show. I mean, all even Hamilton, everyone knows the biggest hit. Um, at some point, and I don't know exactly when it was, I'd have to ask uh, the producer who's a friend, um, the, the, the person out there who bought or the people who bought the tickets to the farthest point that Hamilton had been selling as of March um, of last year may have been, let's say, March of uh, – it may have been as far out as, uh, let's say, March of 21. They may have bought a ticket for March of 21, but there will be no Hamilton performance um, in March of 21, there won't be any performances on Broadway until at least the summer. And that's if we have some luck. So we, we may be back up to some degree with a few shows that are a little less expensive to get to get ru- running. So for the first time in the history, probably a couple hundred years, there, there's not a single ticket sold to a single show. They've all been refunded. 
And that and Hamilton, although I don't know the actual number, had tens of millions of dollars in, in tickets sold that they had to refund. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know here in LA we have a pretty big uh, comedy scene, and that's kind of something that's happened a lot in comedy. Like all these shows got shut down, and and you know nobody really knows when things are going to open up. And I guess you know Broadway, it's it, it's even more so, right? It, it's such a it it helps to define that city. Um, and when do you, I mean, when, do you are, when are you expecting, when are you hoping, I guess, that the COVID-19 restrictions relax and, and, and maybe you guys start opening back up again and, and start putting together shows? Well, I think we're, we're, we're both cautious and, um, you know, and, and trying to really adhere to the experts. So we, we sort of feel as, I mean, there's, there's no, I guess, I guess there's no, there's certainly no one theory among us producers. I mean, we're, we're within a, a range. No one's saying, who cares? Throw the theaters open. And, and also, no one's saying, you know, we have to wait till every last case has been eradicated. I mean, no one's at either of those extremes. But I think our sense is that when we have um, worked it out with the city and the state that we can safely have people sitting next to each other, probably masked, um, we will be ready to go. Now, that may take the form of proof of a recent negative test, even maybe proof of vaccination. Um, and it may not um, be that we're able to open for quite some time with people, what I would say, are shoulder to shoulder. In other words, we may need to open at, uh, you know, you could pick your capacity number at yeah. 70 50. We, we, we've kind of figured out that we can give people at least six feet um, if we're talking about it being somewhere in the 20-something percent capacity. And that's a small number. For anyone who's yeah. been in a theater, if a theater is 60% full, meaning 40% empty, it feels pretty empty. So if you go to a theater at 20%, it's going to feel really empty. But, but if that's what has to happen, um, you know, there are people who think that it should, as opposed to waiting for uh, uh, you know, a moment when you can fill theater, you can fill the theater back up with safety. So we, we are taking precautions. We, we're going to we're going to figure out bathrooms. We've already worked on the safety of the buildings themselves, not just hand sanitizer everywhere, but also better filtration, all kind of stuff like that. Nevertheless, we still have to figure out other things. We have to figure out testing. We have to figure out we have to figure out vaccination. And it, and I can as I can tell you that your listeners can be sure that there will be no Broadway before, before Memorial Day, that's for sure. Well, also, you know, you, you've mentioned this to me, you know, uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, the, there's the concern of, of, of affordability because, you know, shows need to, what you tell me, like something like they need to be 60 70% to even make a profit. They have to have that much audience, yeah. right? I mean, so you know, if you open at 20%, they're losing money with every show. It, it depends, right? Yes, I mean, most shows, even Hamilton, although Hamilton's done so well that, that the producer, um, you know, may decide, look, we just got to blaze the trail. But, yes, that's an expensive show. It's got an orchestra. It's got a big cast. Um, there may be ways to thread the needle that, uh, that may not be, you know, may not be the idea that every, everyone in my industry feels is the right way to go. But there are shows that cost less. I mean, you can think of, for example, a show where you don't have to build a set and you don't have you don't have uh, a big cast. That that's a show that may not need to be as full. Um, 
there's very little that can open with 20% capacity, like you said. I mean, just, you know, uh, again, Hamilton, even Hamilton charging its pre-COVID prices, uh, I'm fairly certain would lose a lot of money if it were 20, 20% full. Um, but, um, but it is, you know, again, there's this, there are variable pers- varying perspectives on whether it makes sense to open with, uh, with these emptier theaters uh, making less and hoping that, that everyone in the industry will take less so that the investors can have a, a chance to at least, you know, earn a little bit. And, and I don't even mean profit. I mean not decimate their future um, commercial perspective, you know, uh, possibilities. So it, it, it's very tough. And, and I tell you, there is, no, um, there is no one who thinks that anyone's got it all down. You know, we're going to need more development. Of course. And hopefully, again, hopefully the vaccine is going to be a big part of that. Don't you, I, I also wonder, don't you think it's likely that shows that already have their, except for cases where obviously you have to recast, but shows that have already been up and running are, are, have a leg up in getting re, re-going. You know, I mean, it's easier. The, the set's in place for Hamilton. It's been frozen in that theater for, you know, eight, nine months now or a year. Uh, it's easier for them to just go back in with, and just launch the show because they've already rehearsed it in most cases unless they have to replace significant cast members you know that it's a quicker start for them than somebody who's going to mount a new production obviously well it is but but consider this um they've taken a hit um hamilton has i mean not just hamilton everything that was open and running first they started losing tickets to people who were worried about covid right because we were we, we were shut down by the governor on march 12th um and there were returns of tickets before then. Then there were, and, and obviously it's a bigger issue for shows that, that aren't as ultra profitable as Hamilton. Um, but then you've got the issue of, well, let's take care of our actors. Let's take care of our, of our other staff. So many shows paid, um, you know, made payments and some got, you know, insurance, uh, insurance settlements, but still that didn't cover things for long. Plus, there are issues of, well, do you continue paying rent to the theater owners? Um, do, you know, all kinds of things like that. Also, um, when, if you're a show, and I, and I have one, if you're a show that had not yet rented a theater, you're just frozen. And as you would say, your burn rate can be close to zero. You, you haven't started paying rent. You haven't started advertising. You, you haven't cast yet. So, there, you know, yes, there's, there, there's a sense that if you're already in the theater, um, and, and I'll give you a, a really interesting image in a moment. If you're already in the theater and you were shut down, that's true. Your set is sitting there still, and you, you probably have part of your cast intact that, that won't need a full rehearsal period, which is often six weeks or so for a musical. Um, but you also have those other issues I just described. And here are two quick images for, you know, for the listeners. I mean, I've already given you one first, obviously, unfortunately, but here's another one. I mean, if you add up, uh, the world wars and every other war that the, that the country has been in, you add up the, the shutdowns for blackouts, hurricanes, um, for 9-11, which was just a few days, uh, and uh, strikes, and anything else you can think of. There probably were other things, too. There probably at some point was, you know, was some other emergency that I'm not even aware of. That hasn't you add up everything in the past 150 years. That, that hasn't even come close to the number of days that we've been shut down in this one pandemic. So you can almost think in an almost like Orson Welles film kind of way, there are these ghost lights 
sitting on the stages of these theaters on Broadway and across the country, probably the world in many ways, that have been lighting an empty set that was frozen in time uh, on, in the case of Broadway since March 12th. And in some of those cases, there hasn't been a soul in that building. Um, I was touring a play called Jitney that got shut down in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was in Seattle when Seattle pulled the plug on, um, on public gatherings. And, and that set is still sitting at Seattle Rep in, in Seattle. So it is a really almost, you know, haunting image, um, partly because of the ghost light, but partially, partially just because, you know, these, these sets that are, are literally gathering dust never happened in the history. I'm actually going to say something pretty big. Never in the history of the world. Um, it, it's, it's a well, really it's kind crazy of, you know, it creates another logistics thing too. I'm thinking about now because, like you, I was going to bring that up. You just brought it up that you're, you've got your set stuck in Seattle. So before, whether that if that show's not going to come back because of all the complications of a touring company, you know, everybody's left, nobody's there anymore. They'd have to ship them back out. They'd have to make sure the cast are available. There's all those logistical things. On top of that, before they can even mount a new show, they got to get that set out of there. So somebody's got to get up, come in and tear that down and ship it off. And they got to do all, you know, I mean, if you're going to use the set somewhere else, you don't want them to just like throw it away. So they've got to, you know, it's just, there's just so many complicated aspects to this when you think about it logistically that are, are factors, you know, uh, that, that play into, and all of this is waiting on them saying, okay, we think we can restart theaters on such and such a timeline here's your timeline for starting, you know, rehearsals and stuff. Then you got to figure out when can we actually get in there and remove the set so we can build a new set. It's just very complicated. Very, very. And you you really nailed something. I mean, the, you know, most sets are not built for one person to take down. So you've now got an issue where people are exerting themselves pretty significantly in some cases, and they've got to be right around each other. So for the most part, if there's no urgency, a lot of these sets have sat there. And, uh, and I, you know, I know there are a few that have been what we call struck, meaning removed. Um, I, I'm glad for the time, because although I don't know that we're going to be able to figure out a way for Jitney to go forward, um, I don't want I don't want to trash everything. I'm pretty green. So, you know, uh, so if any of your listeners are in Seattle, I might be able to give you some of our set but, uh, uh, and costumes. But um, but I, I but seriously, um, I, I do think that that there there is going to be a moment. Uh, as things get better, when there's going to be a slew of need to move things around. And, and it's good. You know, I, I did have one thing in, uh, uh, in rehearsal at the Public Theater downtown in New York that, you know, the set had gone up, but we hadn't started performances. You know, they're committed to starting it again. So, again, that's something that's frozen that's, that's going to start up again. And it's a little different. I didn't really get into it, but the, the economics of nonprofit theater, of these theaters that, that exist, um, not obviously not for profit, but they still sell tickets, they, they want to commit to presenting these new projects. And, um, and, and they have, if they are solvent, and, and the public theater will always be solvent, I think, um, they, they want to get back to what they do. So I think it's almost, you're almost in better shape with a, with a nonprofit theater that, um, that whose charge is a little different. It's not really about making money for investors, uh, um, it, it's about presenting work and, um, and, and staying alive, obviously. Sure. Sure. Is there, well, is there a concern also, I guess, you know, being, having not done anything for a while and, and, you know, some of, some, some of your like crew people that may have like moved on to other careers because just financially they had to, uh, things of that nature, you know, is, is that something that is worrisome 
to to you know trying to get back get a get a production started uh, back up you know in in, in a few months. Um, it, you, I, I missed a tiny bit of that in terms of getting productions back up in a few months. What what was the concern that you were? Oh that you yeah, were so since you you know since it's been shut down for so long and unfortunately you know just the the financial toll it takes on a lot of people like you know people in the crew and things of that nature, you know. The, the the you know the the fear that a lot of the a lot of people have had to like move on to perhaps other jobs just to make ends meet and you know maybe decided to retire in the time you know just for whatever reason are, are all those people that help make these productions possible you know the longer you wait the the you know the the, the worse it gets as far as like chances of a lot of those people returning back to the to the theater business you know is is that a concern you know as because it's taking so long. I, I do think, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a concern. I think there are going to be some very talented people who are not available. And, and believe it or not, I mean, of course, believe it. I mean, there are a few who have passed away from, you know, yeah. well, from COVID. And, and I'm, you know, I was, you know, I think my entire team was devastated that we lost this incredible actor named Anthony Chisholm. And, and we don't think it was to COVID, but, but he was in his late 70s and, and he passed away uh, a few months after we, we wrapped up in Seattle. So, um, I do think there's some of that. I don't think, though, that um, many shows are going to be crippled, right? Those shows that, those shows that um, were up and running really don't, don't need their, their playwright, their, their composer, right? That's all, that's all created. Unless someone decides they want to change the, the material, they don't really have that issue. So the, the, what, what instead is, is going to be the issue is, is probably there will be some you know, some of the, uh, uh, some of the members of the company, meaning um, might, might be a new general manager's associate. There might be a need for a new associate uh, choreographer. I think the big time choreographers had, you know, have their, um, and directors, et cetera. They, they have more wherewithal, more, you know, probably more financial assets and others to, to wait it out. But I will tell you one thing that's for sure. Um, there are going to be tons of different actors, singers, and, uh, and dancers um, all over Broadway and, and all throughout the theater because of, because of this fallout. That is going to be big. And, you know, um, uh, Hugh Jackman hadn't started his next project, and obviously you can't really replace him very easily. But, but you know, for, for as talented as everyone is, um, no one is buying a ticket because of a of a dancer in um in a, in a musical who is replaced by someone who does the exact same dance you know that that is um that you know there are a lot of a lot of we call them hoofers you come up call them anything but there are a lot of incredibly talented hard-working people who uh give their careers um over to broadway and off broadway but they're not the reason um by themselves they're not the reason people are buying tickets so I think a lot of those people are going to be, you know, they're going to have changed and lost their careers or, or some of them, um, you know, you can't dance very much into your, into your latest days. So you, if you feel like you're, you know, you've stiffened up over the past year and you, and you, you don't feel like you can go back to it. I think that's going to have happened to a few people. And, and again, I think the biggest numbers are going to be those who just kind of gave up on, on the ability to kind of keep their lives going without, without that income. Um, so that, that where is where I think it's really going to be different. And yet, um, you know, there's so much talent out there that most of these shows uh, will recast and be, uh, be very, very similar to the way they were. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's a brutal that thing. That brings it's up an interesting question. That brings up an interesting question that I've always wanted to ask. So I'm going to ask it. One of the things that happens is, you know, you, you obviously you have rotating cast. You have your opening cast, and people will rotate in and out of a show. Their contract ends. Big stars have to go back and do a movie, or you know, just people decide that they're, they're they've done enough shows. They want to move on to something else. How do you train somebody to step into a role? When, like, you know, Les Miserables had any number of casts for the, you know, however many years it ran in Cats and so on and so forth. So how do you prep new people to step in with an existing cast? Are they they're off doing their own rehearsal, or how do they do it so that you can get them up and running and, and just plop them into the show? Well, yes, you, you do. So in the case of a show where, um, where let's say, uh, 19 out of 20 people come back and you're replacing one of them. Now, part of it is how big their role is, of course. Um, but if it's a sizable role or a lot of dancing or a lot of songs or a lot of lines, they are going to have to have some one-on-one. Some of it's going to be with maybe there might be an assistant director, it might be with the director. Some of it could even be with a stage manager that's going over blocking because the, the stage manager does, does a fair amount of oversight of the show once the show is up and running. But that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, even at the end of a year, the talent and the, the memory, uh, muscle memory in some cases, and vocal memory, and, and obviously plain old memory, is going um, to be significant in terms of the rehearsal process. I, I would bet that, especially when it comes to producers, most will say that the main, the main issue, once you get past the safety issue, um, the main issue of getting back and running is getting enough theater ticket buyers. It's not going to be rehearsal. It's going to be, it's going to be, um, which, which even again, in, in the case from zero to zero to go, it's really only six weeks for a musical. It can be as little as four for a play on Broadway and it can be quicker than that sometimes. And it's rarely longer. So that's really not going to be the issue though. You are correct that there will be people who have to do a lot more work than others. No, no, I, I, and I wasn't just talking about COVID. I was talking about generally. I mean, over the course of shows, you rotate people in and out. So I was just curious about how that, that process went. But you answered that question. I just was saying that that was kind of my question. It's how, how you get somebody up to speed when they have to step into a role that somebody else has been doing. You know? So, um, well, let's talk about your movies. I mean, you've done, you've done, you know, a few films. Like the biggest, most prominently known one is probably The Butler. And I understand you, you told me you were brought onto that because of your knowledge and relationship with civil rights leaders to kind of consult with Lee Daniels on that. But how does your, how does your producing role vary on motion pictures versus theater? Well, it, it really depends. I've, I've, been, um, I've been an associate producer, which is a smaller role, and, and I had a very small role on, on Butler. I, was, I did, as most producers and executive producers, in a case like that. And it was an independent film for a while until it was purchased. Um, but, um, but it, um, you know, uh, it, it really depends on the level. So I, I've been at, uh, at all levels. In fact, when I was at, um, when I was at uh, Gene Dominion Productions, I was an executive. So I was really sort of um, getting involved in production sort of on behalf of the producer. I wasn't really a producer then. Um, uh, as an, an associate producer, which is kind of the lower, one of the lower levels of producing, you're doing less. And in the case of the butler, um, you know, I don't want to overstate, um, you know, Lee and I talked and that and that was great because I, you know, this, this time that I've spent with uh, with the civil rights movement in particular, I was lucky to get some, some, some just wonderful time with John Lewis. And I and I, I, I spent time with with Andrew Young, who is, is just equally amazing 
uh, both in his past and his, and his current energy, um, but it's his past accomplishments and, and importance to the country and others. Um, so I, I was really, you know, sort of, um, I, I was always interested to talk to Lee, but he, had, he I mean, he's, he's a, he's a, a fascinating mind and, and didn't, certainly didn't need me, but it was, it was great to bounce things back and forth. Uh, and I brought, and I brought uh, investment to it. Um, through another producer, a friend of mine who knew that I would be interested in, in a project like this. Um, in terms of uh, a, a show, I'm sorry, a film that I actually produced as opposed to executive produced, which is, again, either bringing typically talent or money, meaning an actor or a director or, or, or investors. When I actually produced a film, that's where I started to get involved in in the actual uh, day-to-day work. So I was involved um, with the other producers of a, sh- of, a, of a short called Tadema. It's a good example, which is, which is sort of a, a, an interesting piece about a family during, uh, during the Japanese internment, which I've always been, um, uh, that history I've always sort of been uh, drawn to in, in many ways um, and, and wanted to learn about, about the decisions that, that the country and, um, and individuals made. But um, but then I was involved in you know in, in some of the some of the day to day work in producing. So and again um, I would say for for listeners that when you see all these categories of producers you can you can almost always assume that the first one two three or four especially in Hollywood uh, uh, producers are the ones who are doing the hands on work. Uh, and then and by the way there's a rule now that does not exist on Broadway that. There is a very limited number of producers who can be eligible for the for the Academy Award, whereas there is no limit on Broadway. And it's um, and so people are people are realizing that when it comes to Broadway, that you know you can get involved as someone with with very little experience and actually be eligible and win a Tony Award. Um, much much more difficult uh, with the Academy Award. Um, so it's again um, the levels: producer, executive producer, co-executive producer, associate producer, co-producer. Um, just generally, you know, the, the ones who have the most to do with making discrete elements happen, including funds and stars, are often executive producers. And then the ones who are doing the hands-on work are the first handful of producers. And then, um, and then others have other roles that, that often can be hard to define. Yeah, so uh, what are some of the uh, upcoming shows that you're working on and hope to have out soon? Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about them. Sure. Sure. So uh, the ones that were running that were shut down, I mentioned Jitney, and I, I don't know if that's going to be able to, to open again. I, I was also, I'm also involved, as we mentioned, in Mockingbird. Um, and I, I had, um, I had a, uh, an involvement. I'm a co-producer on Moulin Rouge as well, which is running on Broadway. That is planning to roll out a tour in, in North America, a, um, an Australian production, and, uh, and a production in London. So there are plans. Um, now I'm not the lead producer on any of those. So the one I, I'm, um, I've been talking with um, a number of different uh, producer colleagues, uh, actors, directors about what you know what we can do as things start to roll open. And um, and the the play about Dr. King and the civil rights movement is getting closer. I'm really hopeful that, that we can get that one moving. Um, the director is one of theaters, uh, I don't know anyone who wouldn't say this, um, so I'll, he'll, probably, uh, he'll probably hit me, but, um, but he's one of the great treasures of American theater. His, everyone probably know his face if they look. 
his name's Stephen McKinley Henderson. He's a he's a Broadway he's a he's a bit of a Broadway legend for the things that he's done. And then um, he's he's also been in a lot of films. People stop him all the time for Tower Heist and other films he's done. But he is a real uh, wonderful Renaissance man who who just uh who has is so steeped in the civil rights movement but also in everything about acting and directing so i can't wait till that goes um we're going to have to figure out where it starts i definitely want to start it outside of new york um but you know i've been also discussing um discussing probably um we i think i told you a little bit about the 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 musical at down at the public that that is basically an adaptation of uh, of the musical uh, of the the movie by Tom McCarthy called The Visitor, and it's a it's another beautiful piece. Uh, I, I say that some of the some of the music is 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 nothing short of spectacular. And again, I don't say that about things I don't feel that way about, but um, that's that's Tom Pitt's work. Um, uh, he's a Pulitzer winner for Next to Normal, and um, and Brian Yorkey uh, as well. So. Um, I'm excited about those. I've got, I mean, there are so many things that I think are, are sort of tentative. Um, and um, I, you know, I really, um, I, I really would find it hard to know at this point, which of the plays that I've kind of looked at and stuff is going to, is going to be able to get a theater, which is going to have to wait. Um, you know, I, I, I want to work again with Sarah Jones. That's a very serious possibility. Um, and um, and probably ooh, seven or eight other projects that, depending on the circumstance and depending on the theater available, could go. But um, but it's, that is really a, it's a question that all of us are you know, except for the things that we have that are up and running and we think can get going again, um, we we really have to we really have to sort of uh, roll with these crazy circumstances. And I'll just add that think about this. Um, New York was ground zero. It's not really ground zero anymore, but it is a big city, obviously. And there are people who, uh, there are still a lot of people who live in the city and in the area who I think are going to be the ones to come back to theater. And uh, there are shows, maybe I shouldn't list them, but I think people know them, that are really way past the local audience. You know, they're, they're, they're really, if you were to, to have seen them before the pandemic, you would notice a lot of foreign languages being spoken, a lot of people from the Midwest, it's not, they're not really, they're not really New York shows anymore. Hamilton certainly still is and, and, but, um, and many others are, but there are shows that have been around a long time, you know, North, certainly many of those North of a decade, they rely on tourism. And, and I would say some of them probably 95, 98% are, are of the theater goers in those theaters at any given time are from, you know, well past an hour an hour's drive or train ride from the city. So are those people coming back? You know, frankly, our, our sort of predictions are not, not to start. So it's a lot harder to think how some of those older shows are going to be able to pull it off. Um, and they probably are going to want to open more slowly and more tentatively. And, um, and that is a really sort of, sort of a big question mark still. Well, yeah, I, I imagine that, that you're really not going to feel like you're up and going again until the tourism starts up again because it's just the nature of the beast. Tourism is a huge part of, of Broadway's financial reality. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And, I, and I, again, they, they, tourists tend, I mean, again, not to kind of single out shows, 
but they tend towards musicals because big flashy musicals are harder to get and I'm sorry, they're harder to get further out from, from New York. And uh, there's certainly, certainly the production values are rarely as, you know, as, as high as you can get on a place like Broadway uh, in some of these regionals. And they tend towards big stars. So if you're going to take, take All My Sons again, um, if you were to present All My Sons again on Broadway, but you were to use talented actors who are not well-known, um, probably not many. I mean, there are going to be a few. I would probably have been one of them. Uh, but there are going to be a few people who say, oh, Arthur Miller, i got to go see an Arthur Miller show. Sure. But that's not going to be a 1,000 people a night. Sure. Well, and I, I mean, the, the simple fact is that, 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 yeah, you're right. The production values are a huge draw. I mean, there's, there's nothing quite like seeing a show on Broadway. I've seen, I mean, I saw the final run of, of the, the actual final touring production of the original Les Miserables in St. Louis. But, you know, and, and that was a, it was a very good, well-produced, well-played, you know, show that I, I would hold up and say, you know, well, it was, I saw it on Broadway several times and then I saw it on in, in the theater and there and a couple of times in, in, on the road. And I, I, you know, they did a great job with the touring companies of it, but it's certainly when you go to New York, you know what you're going to see is the best of the best. And that is a huge draw for people that, you know, want to see, you know, quality theater. So I, I, I'm sure that's the case. Well, listen, we, we really appreciate you taking all this time. We've kind of used up our time and then some. So where can people keep track of what you're doing? I know Internet Broadway Database is probably the main thing. I don't see you on a lot of social media, but where, where can people go to, <laughs> to follow Spark Productions and, and, and Eric Falkenstein? I know. I get a lot of criticism from friends saying, why aren't you, you know, I don't, I don't spend the time there because I, I, I try to stay in, on the development side and the production side. But uh, so my website for, for the company just lists what we've done. It's not, not a very exciting thing. Um, yeah, I, so IBDB uh, is .com is the one that lists Broadway credits. Um, it, there isn't much news on that. Uh, but, um, but by, uh, you know, by all means, um, if, um, you know, if someone has questions and they, um, and they, you know, and they reach out to you, I'm happy to try to answer them. And, um, I would, I would also say this, that, that there will be, um, there'll be updates on, um, you know, on the, the typical Broadway and theater websites that are, that are probably very few individual producers will, will be able to keep up with them as quickly, but it's true. I will, I want to say that it is smart when you're promoting your shows. I'm just less of a promoting producer than I tend to be a developing producer. Uh, it's good to have social media and to be announcing what it is that you're, um, you know, what you're doing and what's going on. And, uh, but I also do have, you know, publicists on every publicist and, and marketing people on every show. And they do that um, promoting the show, not so much me. So I kind of hide a little bit, but, um, and look, there are producers out there who are very front and center and, and, uh, and that's that's part of their deal, but um, but hopefully, um, as I say, the the the, res the restoration of theater of, of Broadway and theater generally will be uh, on some front pages, um, you know, not just on the theater websites, but also but also well, uh, on major papers and stuff. Yeah. Yes, the major major sources of news for those who are interested are like Variety.com covers theater, although it's it's far more dominated by TV and movies. It does cover theater. But also Playbill.com has stuff. So those are two of the main ones, other than the Internet Broadway database, which really is just a list of, like IMDb, it's more of credits. There's really not any news factor to it. So those are places you That's can right. check out what Eric's doing, and you can always Google him and see what, what's coming up, too. 
Yeah, yes, and I'm curious about that. If, if uh, you have listeners who who have questions about the industry, and they, I, I don't know if they can reach out to you, but they certainly, if they can, if they can, I'm happy to try. To no, no, they come to our, you know, yeah, people will come to our uh, to our Facebook page, so we'll we'll take care of that. Don't worry about that. I'll pass stuff on sure. if there's anything anything for you. But hey, listen, thanks for making time to chat with us. It was really great to learn more about what you do and and uh, to hear the inside scoop on on how the impact of COVID and all that stuff. And so we wish you really, you know, we wish you continued success. We wish you health and safety. And we look forward to seeing what, what happens here in the future when uh, when things come back. Thanks. And you guys, uh, really a pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Brian, that was a really great interview. Uh, I have to admit, I, one, I learned a lot about the theater. I mean, like I said, coming into this uh, interview, a big part of what I was really interested in was just learning about the process of, of, of the theater. And of course, the other big thing is just kind of learning what's, what's going on with COVID-19 and just how the theater and Broadway and, and just New York has just been affected by, by COVID-19. Um, you know, I, I can't wait for, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons for us to kind of get back on track, get, get the country moving again, but just kind of hearing those personal stories from you know a producer on Broadway and how it's affected uh, that community, it, it it really kind of hit home at, at how how devastating this COVID has been. But I'm I'm just so looking forward to what Broadway does and 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 you know and and, and Eric and 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 Spark uh, uh, Productions do you know once they come back. Um, yeah, uh, you know it's uh, funny. Because yeah, I think it's in, you and he have have an interesting parallel that I don't have, and that you know with me located in the middle of the country, you're on either coast. You're on the, you're in LA and he's out in New York. And, 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 and as he said, New York has kind of been ground zero for COVID, but LA really has too. California has been so hard hit. And I know you've had COVID in your own family and your wife is a, a nurse, a medical provider. So that hits really close to home for you. So I, I mean, it, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting parallel to hear him talk about it. I've heard more about what's going on in California than I have what's going on in New York. It makes me wonder, though, what people are going through in other big cities like Chicago. And I mean, you know, I haven't heard anything about Chicago. It's like the third largest city in the U.S. I haven't heard anything about how COVID's affected Chicago, ironically, even though I live in the Midwest. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to get that insight for people uh, about that. And, I, you know, he, he did a really great job of articulating all of that kind of stuff. He also does movies, so that was kind of fun to hear about. Um, so, I mean, I think uh, people really enjoy him, and hopefully – We'll get some. Uh, I'm going to find out if any of his shows were, or put uh, excerpts on YouTube or anything. We'll put some links in the in the show notes. Um, you can really. Eric's not on social media, so when you guys want to look after what he's doing, you're going to have to go to uh, ibdb.org, which is uh, Internet Broadway Database, and you're going to have to check that out. Or is it .com? Anyway, look for Internet Broadway Database, and you'll find it. And I'll put a link in, in show notes, which, again, if you want to find this, the notes and the shows together, notes will have links, they'll have a little bit of information on the guests. All of that can be found at anchor.fm slash genre talk podcast. Now, we post links to all of that at facebook.com slash genre talk podcast. And also on Facebook, you can go and comment on each episode and ask questions, and people like Eric will respond. Um, he's not on social media, so I'll have to pass on his response. But – I, he can email it to me, and I can just paste it in the comments for you so you guys can hear Eric's response. Um, he said he was more than happy to do that. 
Uh, and, you know, all of these kind of things. Uh, we also have a list of our upcoming shows. There's a whole list of uh, shows that you can ask questions for. Remember that we record a couple months in advance, so you kind of have to be ahead of the game on looking at what upcoming guests we have and submitting your questions. We're not going to promise to answer every question that you ask, but we'll pick at least two or three good ones and ask them during our interview. If, you know, I mean, sometimes you guys come up with stuff that we didn't think of that's a really nice angle. So we enjoy giving those fan questions and putting them in there. So, you know, don't be shy. Feel free to submit questions. Um, you know, don't what, – one warning I'll give you guys is we're not going to do, do any of the, you know, hey, uh, why don't you hire me kind of questions. You know, uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you read my novel or why don't you read my play or why don't you hire me or let me audition for you. Those kind of questions are not the kind of thing we're going to pass on to our guests simply because it's not appropriate and it's, uh, it's certainly um, – Frankly, they get a lot of that crap wherever they go, and, and we don't want to be another source of it. So I'm just going to warn you guys right now, if anybody tries that stuff, uh, that stuff will be either deleted or ignored. So uh, it's, it, we, we, want, we want you to ask questions. We want you to enjoy the guests. But we're really about learning about things that we all enjoy and, and how they work more than we are about um, any kind of, a, you know, getting you work kind of thing. So just keep that in mind. I mean, I, I, I understand network is important, guys. So uh, hopefully this gives you an idea of how these people network. One of the things these guys all talk about is how they network. And I, I know Dan Norton's interview last week was really insightful, and I think this interview will be as well. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Um, our, our next show, we have, I believe – it's Brandon Tyler Russell, who was a child actor who's now an adult actor, and he's going to talk about the difficulties of trying to figure out how to uh, do all that stuff, how to, how to transition from being a child actor to an adult actor, and just the general difficulties of Hollywood and some of what Hollywood has gone through with COVID, which will be an interesting perspective that we haven't gotten yet. We just got from Eric's Broadway perspective. So anyway. Be sure and check that out in a couple weeks. Again, you go to anchor.fm slash genre talk podcast, and you can hear all of that. Of course, we always welcome you to listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show should be available. We're going to have it up on YouTube soon as well, and we'll have, um, of course, anywhere else we can push it out. You know, again, you can comment, let us know if there's places you'd like to see it. We'll try to get it get it put up there. Anyway, we want to thank you guys for listening. And, Philip, I will talk to you in a couple weeks. All righty. You have a good one. Genre Talk is hosted by Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. Music for Genre Talk is Your Guess Why by DJ Manifesto. Editing was by Randy Strew for Envision Podcasting. Copyright 2021 to Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas.